Let's go. There again. Oh, here we go. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> Father, we're not disappointed this morning. There isn't anything about this service that I'm disappointed in. Lord, I am so blessed. And I am sure that everybody, Lord, that's been here this morning is just as blessed as I am. Lord, what a day for us to celebrate, to give the best that we have to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There isn't anything, Lord, that I want to do differently than praise you. So, Lord, we're not disappointed. Father, I just hope that what we've given, Lord, is out of the best that we have. And that, Lord, the best that you've given to us, that we can say, Lord, you're not disappointed. You're not disappointed with one song that was sang, with one thing that we've done today. Because, Lord, we came for one sole purpose. There's only one design, Lord, this morning and the rest of this day and the rest of our life. And that is to spend our life, to spend and be spent for the resurrection of Jesus Christ to give our lives to you, Lord. We want to thank you for the life that you gave to us because, Lord, there's no corruption in the life that you give. Lord, there's nothing in us that has darkness and evil as long as you're the one that has the preeminence and the reign and the authority and the power. So we give ourselves to you. And, Lord, right now, I just thank you. I thank you for these songs. I thank you for the worship and the expression of love that comes from our hearts to you. You are worthy of it, Lord. You're worthy of every song that we will sing. Lord, if we spent the rest of this day praising your name individually, every single one of us as we go home, we will have done the best service that we can because you deserve it, Jesus. So thank you, thank you, Lord, for what you've done in this service. Enable me and bless me, Lord, to be able to deliver this message. Lord, and I know other men and all over this community and this world are delivering a very similar message this morning. But Lord, it's just one purpose in it, and that is to make sure that we have our eyes open, our hearts open to the reality that you have already conquered death. You have conquered the grave. Lord, I love that when you prayed and when you spoke, you said when you were about ready to raise the dead, you said they sleep. Lord, you didn't say they die. You said they sleep. Because as far as you're concerned, every one of those bodies were going to come up out of that grave and you were going to reclaim corruption over our bodies and over this earth and over this life. That, Lord, that is the power of God. It always claims the corruption. It always claims the darkness. Hallelujah, Jesus. And there won't be an ounce of it left when it's all done. And your name will triumph in Jesus' name. In Jesus' mighty name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. <laughs> I got your audience, didn't I? <laughs> Praise the Lord. So I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's a lot of the portion of this chapter that I'm not going to read to you, but I would advise you to take it home and read it. Read it very carefully. Um, chapter 15, verse 54. 
So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death has swallowed up in victory. Praise God. I want to start with sharing with you the amazing life of Jesus. I know we know this, probably majority of us, everything that I'm going to share right now is things, bits and pieces that you've already put together a long time in your life. But sometimes maybe we don't put it all together in its fullness. And out of just the book of Matthew alone, just in the, the accounts that Matthew gives of Jesus, we get to read the story and the life of Jesus and the amazing life that he lived. The first one is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. You don't have to turn there. Jesus was born of a virgin. Sometimes we, we don't take time to pause and to consider no one else can lay claim to that. No one else can say that they were born of a virgin, that they were divinely conceived. Only Jesus Christ can say that. That alone is just enough to amaze us. That's enough to stop the mouths of every human being and every accusation and every person who's put it in their mind that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, that He wasn't God Himself. Explain to me how that Jesus isn't God when He was born of a virgin. Tell me how it's possible that He was just another human being on earth. And I would say, I couldn't believe you. I wouldn't take time to listen to the, the, the theories and the ideas behind it, because that to me is evidence enough. But He doesn't stop there. And that's, we could just stop ourselves and say, just think about that. But He doesn't stop. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, he started his ministry with a 40-day fast. And he endured, he endured satanic temptation, satanic promotion, and satanic deception. Jesus Christ overcame all of that during a 40-day fast. And during that time, Satan had said to him, if you're the Son of God, take these stones and make them bread. And yet, even though he had the power to do it, he didn't. In Matthew chapter 8, he healed a leper, miraculously commanded a storm, healed two men possessed with demons. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus healed a paralyzed man, healed a woman with the 12-year uh, issue of blood that could not stop the flow of it, raised a ruler's daughter from the dead, gave two blind men their sight, and healed a mute man and delivered him from a demon. We just begin to just get at the surface of Jesus' life. I want you to remember that I believe it was the Gospel of John and he said that if we had recorded everything that Jesus ever did, that the world itself couldn't contain the books. Matthew chapter 14, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a few fishes. He walks on water and with that invites Peter to walk on water. He healed everyone in the community that touched his robe. In that account, everybody that came and touched him was miraculously healed. Of whatever disease they had, they were miraculously healed. In John chapter 15, Matthew chapter 15, Jesus again healed a multitude of people who came to him lame, blind, dumb, and maimed. In Matthew chapter 20, he healed two blind men again. His teaching was heart-revealing, authoritative, humble, compassionate, 
convicting, and morally perfect. As a matter of fact, Jesus was so perfect that there wasn't anybody in his entire lifetime that could lay claim to one sin on his life, one fault that would have blemished him and put him in another category besides being God's son. There was no way that that could happen. A perfect life. I would like you to take consideration of what you know about Jesus and consider all the details about what make him perfect. Why do we offer him up as the end for which you should live? Why you should give the very last breath of your being, the last um, particle of who you are, and give it in devotion to him? And I want you to take into consideration how perfect Jesus really was. Another point is his life. We want to take into consideration his life. His life was sinless. Who can lay claim to that? Who can say that in their life ever, that there isn't somebody that knows something about, isn't there a hidden chapter in your life that you don't want anybody to read about? There's a hidden paragraph that you don't want anybody to know about. And maybe you've confessed and long dealt with a long time ago, but still, it's the regret of your life, and you wish that it never happened. But yet Jesus never had one of those stories to tell. He never had a moment in his life where he could say, I had sinned once. I had failed in any one point. He could never say that there was one time that the Father wanted him to do one thing and failed in it, missed it, not even partially, not even a tiny bit. Jesus impeccably honored the Father in everything. He was blameless, gentle, love that, meek, lowly, pure, and so much more. These were thoughts as I spent time just meditating on. I was thinking of, these are the things that came to my mind. But I wanted to add the emphasis, so much more. So much more. As Will was singing, I could capture what he was sensing in that moment. That he's so much more, more than I can begin. And as I'm singing, I'm beginning to get that revelation. How many of you felt that this morning? While you were singing, you were hearing these songs. Emily, your song was, in Beverly, that song was so majestic. It fit it. I was thinking of it. He went war. He took three days to do the battle of the grave, to finish the work. And some of us are hanging in the balance and saying, what do you mean? Like there's still people dying and there's still people going to the grave right now. But I think it's just a foretaste of what's going to happen. Another part is every part of his life was impeccable and flawless. Nothing by which anyone at any time could have found fault or moral imperfection. Not even in the least. And yet what I found as I was thinking about this, what's profound is, is that Jesus, the perfect man, the one who healed, the one who took the troubled lives, the one who took the broken and mended them, the one who found a way in the human heart that you couldn't find a way to repair the broken emotions and the broken relationships, and yet Jesus could find a way into that human heart. And he did that right in front of our eyes. And yet Jesus, it is, it says in Isaiah chapter 53, and it says that he was rejected. And we read some of the accounts of his rejection. And he was despised. And, and, and remember, the beginning of his life, the moment of conception, they wanted, Herod wanted to kill him at birth. 
He was accused frequently, frequently of blasphemy, questioned about eating with publicans and sinners. He was confronted with healing on the Sabbath and other practices that did not fit the traditions of their time. This, this perfect, impeccable man, and yet they're trying to find imperfection in things that are only matters of men, only our minor concerns. And the whole point was to find something in his teaching, something about his life that they could pick apart. And every time they tried, they failed. And Jesus left them frustrated and sometimes wandering about even their own knowledge of Scripture. But yet what we pick in that is, is this perfect, gentle Savior who had nothing but the design to restore humanity and restore us was found a way of rejection into the human race. And it said light came into darkness and darkness. And that when we don't receive Him, we don't allow that darkness to permeate our lives. And darkness could not comprehend it. They plotted how to kill. They tried to catch him in his teaching. Rejected his, by his own hometown. John was beheaded. And the reason I wanted to focus on this was because John was the forerunner telling everybody that there's, there's, there's coming Christ the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And for us, in our American culture, and in our background, what we think of is we don't think of a Messiah. We don't think of a Savior who's going to restore us. And even the Jewish people had lost and didn't understand the focus of that Jesus was not coming to restore them from Roman authority. He wasn't coming to restore their country. He was coming to restore their souls. And that's what His kingdom was there for. But John, who had prophesied and told, and John said this about Jesus. This was John's reflection of how unworthy he was to be before our Savior. And he said, I am not worthy that I should be able to unloose the shoe from off of his foot. I wonder if the picture that you might get is there are Mary Magdalene and she's just wiping the hair, wiping his feet with the hair of her head, pouring out precious ointment over him and, and, and the humbleness. And ladies, you'd understand the humility that it would take to take your hair and wipe anybody's feet with it. But that's how beautiful he was to that woman and how marvelous of a Savior that he really was. And that's before he made it to the cross. That's before he was ever resurrected there was something glamorous, beautiful, and something to behold, something miraculous about him. I wonder what it was that the disciples caught. I wonder what moved them when Jesus said, come and follow me. Abandon your life. Abandon what it means to be a fisherman. Abandon what you're doing and come and follow me. And when they did, the amazing life of Jesus wasn't followed with glamour and fame, even though he had lots of people that did, but oftentimes with rejection. Almost sometimes to make you think, Lord, were you trying to bring rejection upon yourself? And I think the focus was that the kingdom of God is always ushered in with extreme humility, practiced within his own life. And Jesus sat there for her to do it, not because he had lacked the humility, but because he knew who he was and he knew that she needed to allow and have this outlet of expression to truly worship him. To truly worship Him. I wonder about you. Is there any point would you say that it would felt like you were groveling? Or you felt like 
that it was a little too much of a humility when it came to worshiping Him? Is He not the King of kings and the Lord of the Lord of your life? And how do you want to express the depth of that worship to Him? And I, what I think is, when I think of that woman wiping his, his feet with her hair, was I think that she was saying, I couldn't think of a more humble, more gratifying way to honor this Christ, this Messiah. I hope that He's just that precious to you. I hope that you feel that way with Him in your heart. I was thinking about today before everybody arrived and just take a few minutes to pray. And I was just thinking about how my heart was melting because of some of the, the sacrifice and the giving of yourselves that I have seen in this congregation. Since my wife and I stepped up to just be in an interim in this place, I have been melted. Today I've been melted with my heart to see the worship that's gone in, the, that what you would call maybe the finite details. And all I see is people that are saying, I want to give my best to God. Whether it's something that's done physically to this church or it's calling somebody or praying with somebody, there's hidden details of your life. But what I see is that I don't see that as you exalting the pastor. I don't see you lifting me up or anything. What I see is that Jesus is getting the hair from off of your head. And that you're giving him your best. And I would like to say today, when you leave the service, I'm praying that you're leaving with the hunger to worship him on a higher level than you did before you came in here. I'm praying that you're looking for an opportunity to exhaust every breath, every part that you have for a Savior that you couldn't ever pay back the price. I love the old song, Oh to grace, how great a debtor I am. Every day thinking about the grace of God that lifted the sky and opened the heavens and gave an open opportunity for me, for me, and gave me that opportunity. I'll never pay back. There's, there's not a payback mentality here. It's just an overflow of my heart for the gratefulness of a great God who would do something like that for me. So praise God. So John was beheaded. I wonder what that felt like to Jesus knowing that this man, I'm sure that Jesus loved more than anybody could ever know and knowing that that final death. But I think there's something else that sometimes we forget. I think that Jesus was rejoicing, not over his death, not over the sacrifice made, but he's rejoicing that there is a worshiper who would give his life. And God is worthy and knows he's worthy of that kind of worship. He was blamed for not following tradition over and over and over again. It was just tradition. It wasn't the word. It wasn't even Moses' commands. Ultimately, it was man's extension upon the commands. And Jesus was always trying to say, this was the original tent. This is where you went with it. And yet, still, constantly trying to find a way to entrap him in, in those struggles. Tempted to show, tempted to show signs. They're like, just show us another sign. We're not going to believe in you, but just do another miracle anyway. Question about tax money. I mean, this, he's got it all, didn't he? Divorce. How many have some questions to give to Jesus about divorce? Lord, what is, I'm not sure about some places, even in the Scripture. I'm a little lost on what about this situation and that situation. And Jesus didn't spend all of his time roaring around in all the situations. He was testing the heart of man. And he said something very simple. He said, Moses gave you that commandment because of the hardness of your heart. I mean, he didn't have to teach on it. All he had to do was examine yourself. Let your own conscience come to light. Imagine your own haughty heart 
And now you're going to have to think about where you're at. Just judge yourself. And then a lot of this other stuff seems to come to light through all of that. Jesus had a miraculous and amazing way of bringing us back into the light of our own conscience. I love what he did with the adulterous woman as he stepped down and he just drew the line. He drew the line. And he said, you that are without sin, cast the first stone. It wasn't that Jesus was minimizing her sin, but ultimately he was saying, you are lost humanity. And how can you judge within the depths of your own inequity another woman? And so basically he's saying, you that are without sin. And it said, one by one, they all left from the oldest to the youngest because they were convicted in their own conscience. Their own conscience didn't forget the past sin and the past life and all of that. And they knew that they deserved the stoning as much as she did. And then when it was all gone and there was nobody left, Jesus, the only one who could have done it, and he looks at her and he says, who's condemned you? And she says, no man, Lord. And I think this was the one point in his life where he could say to this woman, go and sin no more. And she agreed within her heart, I can't go and sin anymore. There's nobody better than you. Nobody that can restore better than you. Nobody who loves better than you. Nobody could have done for me what you've done and restore her life in an instant, in a moment. What an awesome, amazing story. Um, He was questioned about his greatness. Even his own disciples, watching them. You were my disciples. You walked with me. You've seen the, the best of the best. How many of us would like to go back in history and be one of those disciples and walk with him ourselves and yet still see our imperfections and so many things that you can think of? The law of Moses and the Ten Commandments just over and over again, etc., etc. And that's just me going through the book of Matthew. I didn't fit and I didn't hit all the other Gospels. So what I, I thought about all of this and I said he experienced it all, fame and rejection. He got... He got multitudes of people that followed him and he got multitudes of people who rejected him. Didn't change anything. So I have here something I want to show you. A key. This is quite the key as a matter of fact. Because this isn't a key that you're going to start your car with. This isn't a key, well, I don't think any of us are going to open our door to our house with. We've long modernized beyond this kind of a key. Although I will say that this key might work for my barn door. So a key is an important thing. And I wonder today what we'd call the key of Christianity. I wonder if you're holding it, you know where that key fits. So I think one of the things that we would call the key to the Christian life is the cross. I'd say the cross, what Jesus did, because we're all guilty. There's just nobody that can say, I'm not guilty. I haven't failed. And so that we would call the key the cross. And I want to debate that today. I want to debate that with you, that the key is the cross. The cross is super important. It's foundational, fundamental. But I want to debate with you whether that's the key. Because uh, we're going to have to go here to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 12, verses 12. Through 19, so you'll still be in chapter 15 here. I'm hearing you guys turn your pages of your Bible. You shouldn't be doing that. I hadn't changed it for you, unless you were working through some of the Matthew stuff. So I want to say a few comments on this. Um, what Jesus Christ has done is bigger than claiming us out of sin. 
To many people, they think of the cross as the key rather than the door. Jesus didn't come just to pay, suffer for our sin and pay the price. You know, over and over again, and I'll just say, while I spent time, and I had two wonderful weeks to spend thinking about the resurrection. And while I did, there's a whole lot of stuff that came out of that. And, uh, and it blew my theology out the door. Because I would spend most of my time just focusing on the cross, the cross, the cross. But then all of a sudden, it was opened up to me the bigness, the greatness, the enormity of the resurrection. So let's re- uh, begin to read in verses 12 through 19. Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up. And if we that that are dead rise not, or, or sorry, for we that are dead rise not. For in, if the dead rise not, then it is that Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. I don't know if we take the time in Christian thought to think about what he is saying right here in this verse. But I'm going to do my best today to unlock and unpack that for you. You want to take the amazing, miraculous life of Jesus in its absolute detail. Whether you're going through just the Gospel of Matthew or you have researched thoroughly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and somehow you found a way to get all the records of things that no man had ever recorded and you were able to get all of that information. What we're reading here is is that there was no resurrection. Everything that Jesus Christ did ended. It was as if to say it was almost worthless, except for for those people for who had witnessed it. But it ended there. But the bigger part of it is, is that there was no cross that would have been in effect to end our struggle with sin. Nothing that would have stopped the guilt of mankind. Nothing of all that Jesus endured in the sufferings and the struggles on the cross. And paint the picture. Consider in your mind what Jesus went through on that cross. What He bore. Think about Him in the garden, sweating blood. Think about the stress that came over Him and knowing what He was enduring. And think of Him coming to endure that. And He never came up out of the grave. There was a final end to that. That meant... What we're saying is your faith is vain. Your hope that your sin is forgiven is in vain. Your hope that one day you will be with God is vain. All of it is vain. The cross is vain in that sense. If there was no resurrection, it wouldn't have happened. Jesus would have paid the price, and yet it wouldn't have made the transaction. So as Christians, one of the things that we need to hold on to is that Jesus didn't just die but that He rose again according to the Scriptures. 
He rose up from the grave. And what we need to see there is that's where we know that the sin, the struggle of sin has ended. It has stopped. It has been complete. So we may be praying over things that today we are struggling to see if God's going to give an answer to. And yet resurrection is the answer to what you've been praying for. I would like to say and be as bold to say at this, if you're praying for somebody who has cancer right now, if you're praying for somebody who has a sickness that's incurable right now, you may not see them healed. You may not. But be rest assured whether they're healed or they're not. One day, that corruption, that body is going to be restored by the power of God. I don't know if you've taken into consideration what the physical resurrection will look like, but I want you to take, and I'm not going in there because I'm afraid that some of you will be scared half to death to know not only what the power of God is capable of, but rather you've studied and understood the scripture of what he was saying. But in this chapter, he says, this corruption must put on incorruption. When Jesus raised up, I want you to think about this. When Jesus was raised from the dead, do you know that he didn't come back up in the same body that he went to the grave in? Maybe it was the same in physical form, but it wasn't the same body. It was an incorruptible, imperishable body that didn't, wasn't going to die, wasn't going to get sick, wasn't going to suffer under the same things that it did when, before he went into the grave. Why is that significant? Because that's a fulfillment of the very things that God said was going to happen. So when Jesus went into the grave and he come out, now think about some things. When it talks about baptism, when we get baptized, it's a symbolic revelation of something that God has done in your spirit, in your life. Has God in your spirit quickened you from the deadness of sin into a newness of life? So you were buried with Him in baptism. Buried with Him. But you didn't stay buried, did you? Because it says that you rose again in a newness of life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what gives you a newness of life. That's the key. So the cross was the door. The resurrection is the key. You ever stood at a door and like, <laughs> we had a story not too long ago, somebody at a door that was locked out of the door. You know, understand what it means. You can't pass beyond this place into the next place. You can't know what it means to be in a life of incorruption. You can't know what it means to have your spirit washed from its sin. You can't know what it means to be a new person in Christ Jesus. You can't know just by looking at the door. You need the key. And the resurrection was the key. So today when we sing those songs and you know your liberty and you know what God has done to set you free, maybe you've come out of a life of drug addiction. And you know what it means to be born out of that darkness. Maybe you've come out of alcoholism and you know what it's like to be clean and pure for the first time in your life. You know what it's like to have sin in your life. It could be adultery. It could be other things. And you know what it's like to feel so unclean and so guilty and so wrong. And for once in your life, through the cross of Jesus, having given your life to Him, somehow... By the Holy Spirit, God has made you know that you're a child of God and you've been born again 
and old things have passed away and all things have become new. And it's so real to you. It's so real. I love the way one man said it. He said, you don't need anybody to tell you. It's you know that you know. And it's the witness of the Spirit in your heart. I'm not a religious man. I don't come here for the formality. I don't come here just to put in the, the time on Sunday. My life belongs to Jesus. I've been born new. I'm washed in the blood of Jesus. My life, the darkness of sin that conquers me and enslaves me, I'm set free from that. I'm a new man in Christ Jesus. And if you know what that means to be made new by the Gospel of Jesus Christ, then you understand the resurrection was the key that rose you up from your, your grave. And it says it right there in Scripture. It tells us that He that rose up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your immortal bodies. He gave life to you. And you're like, I still feel, I still feel pain in my body. I'm still old and back broken. I'm still struggling in my body. Though the outward man perishes, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. I love to see those with age. I love to see those that are getting closer and closer to their time to be with the Lord and see that there's not one ounce of their spiritual life that's been melted down by the years. They're not more broken by the struggles of life. They're ready. I, I think that sometimes I look at them and I think, you're just like the apostle who said to live is Christ, to die is gain. Imagine what that man went through in his body. Imagine what struggles and physical pains he dealt with. And yet still, nothing melted down in his spirit. The inward man was renewed day by day. These light afflictions, he calls them. Can you imagine what he calls light afflictions? What he calls the fellowship of his sufferings? How does he do that? Because a spirit is alive. It's alive with God. So the resurrection is the key. If you want to know how to make the cross work, you have to value the resurrection. You have to be one of a child of God and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Recognize they go together. And sometimes I wonder that in, in our Christian circles, we've, we've evaluated, we've preached the cross, we've way well made that uh, everybody aware of it, and then we failed to emphasize the resurrection. So this week, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you after this sermon to go spend your time, get a concordance, and read every time it talks about the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. And you will find there are some amazing scriptures about the resurrection and how it talks about that we were buried, we were forgiven through the cross, but we're raised in the newness of life. And sometimes I wonder if the church made it into the newness of life. We were ready to try and give up the sin circle, but we weren't ready to know what it means to surrender and have a newness of life. Praise God. Praise God. The resurrection unlocked everything that the cross provides. And that's why he was saying, your faith is vain. Those that have died are still are there perished. So in verse 23, in, fact, in, verse, in chapter 15, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. I wished I could spend all the time today reading over and emphasizing the scriptures about the resurrection and, and um, how you've been raised up with him. But I'm just going to give that to you to do. 
The cross ends the old life. The resurrection brings us into the new life. That will remind you in Ephesians where he talks about the old passing away and the new coming in. We've got to let go of the old man and we've got to now rise up in the new man. And so that all has to do with the resurrection. All back to the resurrection. Um, how shall we that are dead... So in Romans chapter 6, why don't you go there real quick? Or real slow, however you want to do it. Just get there. <laughs> Romans chapter 6. Verses 2 through 4. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Shall you uh, know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. He's talking about the resurrection. The cross was the payment. The resurrection was the transaction. The resurrection was that transaction. So Jesus rose up in an incorruptible body. What does this mean? The resurrection is the first fruits. The restoration of things physically and spiritually corrupted. Starting with us. So I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter, first Peter. <laughs> Get there eventually. Verses three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has begotten us again into a lively hope. We're born into it by the resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't say by the cross. It says by the resurrection. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What he's saying is, is that Jesus went to do something. He went to reverse what happened in Adam. When Adam sinned, he introduced corruption to us and to our world. Jesus Christ, when he was resurrected, reintroduced something brand new. And that was all corruption is going to be wiped away. That's why in the scripture it talks about a new heaven and a new earth. There's why it talks about a physical resurrection of the body of the believers. There will be a physical resurrection one day because God cannot. He cannot finish things. He cannot finalize something that still has corruption in it. And Jesus Christ in his resurrection was the first fruits of God's working that into being. 
So what we're saying is that right now we're in the middle between the finality of when God winds it all up and finishes it and cleans up all of the corruption. So there's two things that had to happen. The resurrection was for the salvation of mankind. I think the only thing that prevented on that day when Jesus was on the cross and that he was raised, the only thing that prevented the resurrection at that time was future humanity to this day. I, don't, I can't tell you exactly what it was, but I can just say this, that there were souls that were still supposed to come in the kingdom. So until that time happens, and all the souls that were supposed to be brought into the kingdom or that are going to be, that's the final end. So here we are standing. Here's your opportunity. Here's our opportunity. Are we going to heaven? Or are we going to be right with God? And this could be. What we don't know is, Jesus said this, the time of his coming could be at any moment. I want you to examine your life carefully. I want you to think about where you are with God. I want you to look at where you are between your faith and your behavior, what you believe and what you behave. And I want you to see if you're believing and behaving in a manner that complements the cross of Jesus Christ, if it lives up to the plan of God in your life. And if you feel by any degree of your conscience that you're not right, with God. I don't care if you're a naming Christian or not. I want you to ask yourself the question, am I right with Jesus today? Is there anything in my life that's bothering me that I know I need to get right with God? Because Jesus said you do not know the day or the hour. You don't know. And this is not a scare tactic. This is a wake-up call because we don't. And some of us are like, even in our health right now, we would say, I don't know the day I'm going to die based on my health but I don't know the day that Jesus is going to come and reclaim things just the way he did and call it out of corruption. And there will be a final resurrection and Jesus was the first fruits of that. So if there's anything in your life, this is the moment. The resurrection and a newness of life. There's anything. And most of us would say there's something that's bothering me. I want you to take time with God right now. I'd like to call for the worship team this moment. This is your chance to respond to the Lord. And, you know, honestly, I'm grateful for these moments because I feel like I'm locked in to even my own conscience and thankful to the Lord to let me have an opportunity to just get close to Him and walk in a new way. And so I want to give you guys that opportunity while we, whoa, 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 uh, while we sing. And this is an opportunity for you to come up here Surrender is kind of the idea. I want you to take time to surrender and yield to the Lord. If there's something that you've been needing to do, this is your resurrection moment. This is your time to let the Lord have his way with you.